Thank you, Brother Eric. Welcome to all those that are here or that are joining online. We have the privilege, uh, double privilege today. One is that we are at our new location. And secondly, is that we are starting a new book. So, uh, double blessing today. So, what book are we starting today? Uh, we had announced it last week, but uh, just so that we are aware, we're going to be going through the book of Habakkuk. Uh, now, many times we are quick to think, um, why do we focus on the Old Testament, right? And we want to be careful not to fall in the heresy of Marcionism, which centuries ago, he pretty much made the argument that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament, and therefore we must do away uh, with the Old Testament. And a light version of that would be, well, even if you don't do away with it, we should just focus more on the New Testament. That is heresy. We reject that notion because we are convicted by the Holy Spirit that the whole counsel of God must be preached. We typically attempt to go from New Testament and then back to Old Testament. As we just finished the book of Philippians, we are now uh, going back to a book of the, New, of the Old Testament, and that's where we find ourselves this morning in the book of Habakkuk. So with that said, today we're going, we're going to study the very first verse, which will give us an introduction, and then we'll take it from there. So if you are able, please stand for the reading of God's word. The infallible word of God reads, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> as we are introduced to this book, which is inspired by your Holy Spirit, we pray that we may find richness in this one verse for every single word is inspired that is in your holy scriptures and is there for our instruction for us to turn to you in obedience may we be prepared as to what we will learn and may we go away today lord knowing that you indeed have a word for us in the book of habakkuk that we could apply in our lives today we ask this in jesus name amen you may be seated <clears throat> So the sermon title for today, as I was studying the introduction to Habakkuk, I was prompted to name it, Who is Habakkuk and Why Should I Care? I think that many times <clears throat> there would be a notion of asking, why should I pay attention or care to an ancient writing, right? And this may not even be common only outside of the church, but even within churches, we are in danger of falling to that mentality. So as we go through the book of Habakkuk, I want us to find biblical relevance of how we are living in our very day. As we begin then this study, 
I want to give a quick note on why is it that we study the Bible, that we preach the Bible the way that we do. What we aspire to do here and what I'm accountable to you guys as the congregation, specifically to the members, is to be an expositor, to do expository preaching. So I will tell you briefly what that is not and what that is. What expository preaching is not, it is not topical. It is not choosing a topic and then finding verses that will fit my topic in order for me to then do a sermon. <clears throat> in such topical sermons, a pastor will typically give an encouraging message and is very often light on Bible references. It often is very pragmatic, such as today we're going to give you five tips to fill in the blank, to be a better husband, to be more thankful, etc., etc. Now, is that bad? That's not bad. That can actually have some usefulness. And it is my personal conviction that there is actually a place for topical preaching. However, as Reformed Baptists, we are, con we are convinced that that is not the way in which the sheep will grow and learn to love and depend upon God's word. Topical preaching. Now, what is expository preaching in contrast? In contrast? Well, some characteristics of expository preaching, I'll give you what they are. Expository preaching, first and foremost, focuses on the Word of God, on the Bible, not on a topic. And as we preach, and Brother Eric is uh, preaching as well once a month, we focus on the text of the Bible. Secondly, our job as preachers is to extract the meaning of the text. As we look at it verse by verse, and our job is to explain it in the context in which it was written originally. We do not have the freedom to apply verses to a conceived notion that we already believe and then insert our meaning. No, that's, that's not acceptable. Thirdly, <clears throat> expository preaching is the heralding of God's word, the proclamation of God's message, which demands a response from the hearer. We're not here to gain knowledge or to accumulate understanding by itself. No. The purpose of expository preaching then is to herald God's message, proclaim the gospel, find how the gospel of Jesus Christ applies to every text in the Bible, as Jesus himself said, that the whole of Scripture, and he actually was referring specifically to the Old Testament, he says, is written about me. And then, <clears throat> another factor of expository preaching is that it is experiential. That means that it needs to be relatable to me. It is not about learning a Bible story and having a nice reflection message about it. It must go much beyond that. But as it requires a response from the hearer, 
expository preaching should be left with the hearer being prompted to respond because it applies to our lives. So then, <clears throat> expository preaching speaks to the heart. God's truth is preached so that it speaks with conviction and with the comforts that comes knowing that we are hearing from God. I'll do a quick quote here by Joel Beakey, referring to Isaiah 57, 21. He says, quote, Our greatest need is reconciliation with God, without which there is no peace. Spiritual comfort arises from joyfully finding life and refreshment from the truth that God's anger is turned away and has become our salvation. Unquote. So then expository preaching then aims to preach every text of the Bible with the, with the purpose of introducing the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is the one who forgives, saves, and reconciles unworthy sinners to a holy God. So why did I just go through all that? <clears throat> well, it is with this in mind that we are now setting the stage to understand why we're going to study the book of Habakkuk, verse by verse. So with that, today, <clears throat> we're going to divide our sermon into three main sections. First, we're going to ask ourselves, who is Habakkuk? Right? It's part of the sermon title. Who is he? And the second part of the sermon today is the second part of the title. Why should I care? And then thirdly, we'll, we'll give a brief outline of the book of Habakkuk so that as we return Sunday after Sunday, we will have a good background of what we expect. Now, the book of Habakkuk is a relatively short book. It has three chapters. It can be read in one sitting. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, specifically the men, as you lead your homes, Go home this week and read it. Read it with your wife, with your family, with your kids. So that it is fresh in our minds as we go through this book. Alright, so let's dig in. Who is Habakkuk? The verse we read today, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So we know that this author, Habakkuk, is inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, as he had this vision, this message from God, this oracle, this burden. But who was he? Who was Habakkuk? Well, let's take it a step at a time. Habakkuk is a book obviously in the Old Testament. It is a book in the minor prophets. He was considered a minor prophet. Now what, is it, what does that mean? Like, Is he less? No, he's not. When we refer to a minor prophet, it only refers to the fact that it's a shorter book compared to the other prophets. Like Jeremiah, like Isaiah, Ezekiel, which are much more lengthy. So let us not think of minor prophets as less important or as less relevant. No, it is only designated as such because the length of their book, of the writing that was inspired by God through them, is shorter. So Habakkuk is minor prophet in the Old Testament. Now, Habakkuk lived in the final decades of Israel's southern kingdom, about in the 7th century BC. And he was contemporary to Jeremiah. 
The root meaning of his name, Habakkuk, means to embrace. In what sense? It means to embrace as in someone who is struggling, somebody who is wrestling with. As we introduce the book, hopefully we get a picture of why that is. Similar to how Jacob, remember, he wrestled with God? Similar. Habakkuk kind of goes, or at least attempts, to go head-to-head -head with God and asks, asks him in, in so many words, God, what's going on? Like, don't, don't, you, uh, don't you care? So to embrace, to struggle, to wrestle with. Now, other than that, not many more details are known of Habakkuk's personal life. We know that he lived just prior to Judah falling into the hands of the Babylonians. We do know that. And his book, his prophecy, has to do with that. Now, at the time of Habakkuk, what was very prevalent in the life of Israel, the people of God, was that false prophets abounded, corruption abounded, negligence to God's word abounded. Now, hopefully, just by me saying that, we can see how that perhaps applies today. Let us read Jeremiah 6, verses 13 to 15, which are here in the notes, so you can look at the screen. It reads, For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So this is the time that Habakkuk is coming to terms with the fact that the people of Israel have completely gone astray. From prophet to priest and down from there. Now God is going to judge them and although they have responsibility as leaders of Israel over their people, and there is some sort of spiritual and leadership abuse there going on, irresponsible leadership, the people themselves are still accountable to God. Nobody's left with an excuse of, well, you know, I, I have a bad leader, or I have a bad governor, or a bad president, and therefore, woe is me. Nope. Every single one of us is accountable to God for our character and for our everyday lives. So in such a time as um, Jeremiah just described there briefly is the place that Habakkuk finds himself amidst all that chaos. So that's a little bit of who Habakkuk was and where he was placed in history in the history of God's redemptive plan. So now let's go to point number two. Why should I care about what Habakkuk wrote? Again, common objection. This Old Testament, we should maybe focus on the New Testament. And 
If it's written over a millennia ago, it is maybe not too relevant to us, right? Well, let us consider the following. In 1 Chronicles, we are told that when King David was getting ready for war, when he was in conflict with Saul, some men came to the aid of David in order to assist him with this war. And these men were not only physically strong and warriors, there's mention about something more specific that allowed them to be victorious ultimately. Let us look at First Chronicles 12:32. It says, of those men that came, it says, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. So in order to win that battle, we are told that these men were not only strong, they were not only good in war, but it says that they understood the times. Understanding the times requires spiritual discernment. We could have all the degrees we want. We could go to the most prestigious schools. But if we don't have spiritual discernment, you will get the meaning of life. You will get who God is. You will get who you are wrong. 100% guaranteed. And therefore, foolishness will emerge from that worldview. Take that to the bank. So therefore, understanding the times properly requires spiritual discernment. And by the heralding of God's word then, that is by carefully applying expository preaching, which is why I gave the note at the beginning, it will aid us in having spiritual discernment that will then allow us to understand the times. Let us take a quick look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, the first five verses. It reads as follows. This is Paul writing. I charge you in the presence of God and of, Jesus, and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. See that exhortation? To come back and focus on God's word. Not only will the false teachers will be responsible before God, but here we are reminded that the people go and seek out those teachers that are going to, that are going to tickle their ears. So not only then the responsibility of the leaders, but of the people who love to be fed garbage. So then this warning was then true in the time of Paul. It was true in the days of Habakkuk. As we just saw with the warning from Jeremiah, which was contemporary to Habakkuk. And it is certainly true today, this very day. So then my point is this. We are called to have spiritual discernment in our daily life, in our current culture. In order to do so, we must turn to the ultimate standard, God's word. 
the book of Habakkuk is an illustration of how we can use the word of God so that we can understand our times, our culture, right this very second. Scripture is not silent at all about what is going on in our world today. So here it is. We should care about the book of Habakkuk, right? Why should we care? Because by humbly studying it and understanding it, we will be able to have spiritual discernment and hence be the people that understand today's times and do God's will, do what gives him glory, honor him, worship him, how he expects us to worship him. And in doing so, we will be bringing glory and honor to him and exercising the obedience that is demanded from us in our everyday lives. Okay, so who was he and why should we care? Hopefully we get a little bit of understanding of why. Now let us take a look at an outline of what we're going to go through in the book of Habakkuk. First of all, when we come to a new book of the Bible, we need to understand what kind of writing is it? What's the literary style? Right? Otherwise, we may come around with crazy interpretations of wanting to take everything literal. People often, when I'm evangelizing, people are like, oh, do you take the Bible literally? My answer, if it's expected to be taken literally, yes. But if Jesus says, I am a door, like, is he literally a door? Right? So these are little questions that people try to play, like, ah, I got you, right? No, nope, doesn't work. We must understand the Bible in the sense that it was written and understand what kind of literature we're reading when we come to each book. The book of Habakkuk then needs to be understood as poems of lament. Poems of lament. Habakkuk will be crying out to God, grieving, complaining. And then he sort of challenges God to give him a response. And guess what? God answers him. God sure answers him. So, poems of lament. The first lament we will see in chapter 1. And the reason why Habakkuk is lamenting is because he sees that God's word, his law, is being neglected. And as a result, there is much violence and injustice among the people. His complaint goes something like this. Lord, your word is being ignored. And now corruption and violence ensues among your people. Habakkuk is sick to his stomach to see such violence and injustice. And then Israel's leadership, instead of helping to ease the problem and get back on track, they are shown to be corrupt themselves, contributing to what is grieving Habakkuk in the first place. Right? So even back then, looking to government for solutions was not a response. So what is God's response to him in that first lament? God assures Habakkuk that he is aware of the corruption and assures him that he will do something about it. And that what he's preparing to do is getting the Babylonians, those heathens, murderous, wicked people, he's preparing them to bring judgment on his people. See that? 
which then brings lament number two from Habakkuk. And if I were to translate that to our modern layman's terms, Habakkuk basically says, what? Hello, Lord, did you hear me? Maybe you misheard my prayer? Right, and it reminds us that many times when we pray to the Lord, in our prayer, we kind of are already offering what he should respond to us. Right? I know I've done that before. But the answer that the Lord gave, that he's going to use and is preparing some wicked people to judge his people, it seems absolutely outrageous to Habakkuk. And Habakkuk's main concern then is, Lord, how can you, a good and holy God, use people that are even worse than your people to discipline them? And then God responds again. And he gives Habakkuk this vision that is going to take place in the future. And he makes it clear that his response, his promise will be in his timing, in God's timing. In the meantime, while all chaos ensues, while God is in his own timetable, it is in that context that all hell has broken loose. And it's then that Habakkuk understands that in that meantime, while he's waiting for God, that the righteous shall live by faith. You ever heard that scripture quoted? That's where it's from. And that's the context in which that scripture was inspired. In the midst of all that chaos, Habakkuk understands that the righteous, the ones who trust God, shall live by faith because God is not a genie that is going to respond to your every demand in your timing. No. And in that promise, God says, He's not only going to judge Israel, but those wicked Babylonians, they're going to get it too. They're going to be judged as well. God shows them that He uses ungodly, violent nations as they rise and fall to judge other nations. In doing so, God is not forcing any nation to be bad. Nations are already bad. And that applies individually to all of us. God doesn't force us to sin. We sin by nature and by choice. There's never been a sin presented to us that we don't already love. Think about that. Hence, God does not endorse ungodly nations nor endorse their corruption. Rather, all the nations will eventually be held to his perfect justice. Babylon will be one of them. They will fall. They did fall. And all wicked nations will experience God's judgment. That will be in God's timing and his sovereignty, not ours. So then God specifies after those two laments and responses, specify five woes about the Babylonians. That is, what is the woe is like things that are abomination to God, things that he detests, things in which people are sinning against him. The first woe tells us that Babylon indulges in greed. They are a greedy people. You think you've seen greed now? You haven't seen anything. When 
we explore what the Babylonians were doing. Secondly, the second woe is that Babylon indulges in ungodly debt. Not only by the creditors, but by the debtors. Right? It's, it's a two-way street. Third, we see that the Babylonians build their might, their power, via unjust means. Via abusing others. The fourth woe is that Babylon indulges in drunkenness. It's party. And all that comes with that, right? That typically does not come alone. And then the last woe is that Babylon indulges in idolatry. Surprise, surprise, right? That idolatry was literal idols made with their own hands that have eyes but don't see, have ears but don't speak, have mouths, mouths but don't speak, ears but don't hear, right? Now, I've said it often, I'll say it again. Even on that point, of idolatry, little idols. That's so foolish. I mean, can those idols have no power? My friends, I remind you that we have idols, but they're just a little bit more sophisticated. Let us think about that. So my brothers and sisters, does this, any of this, sound amazingly familiar to you? If perhaps even by a little. Or maybe it's very accurate and very familiar to the days in which we live today. The issues brought up by Habakkuk reveal that this type of corrupt practices are not foreign, but rather natural to every nation because the hearts of men are evil. The evil of men's heart knows and is not discriminatory to any culture, creed, religion, nation, skin color, etc., etc. The hearts of men are wicked. And as the world is searching for solutions, they are looking and trying to forcibly apply secular solutions to a problem that is spiritual. It's never going to work. Never. There will never be peace on earth until Jesus returns. So then God's answer to Habakkuk in his prayers and in this vision that he gives him of the coming judgment. It becomes a type. It becomes an illustration, an example that would answer all later generations. Because it applies to all generations. After the second lament of God's, uh, God's uh, pronouncement of the five woes. It will then take us to chapter 3, which is a closing prayer of Habakkuk to God. This prayer, also in the form of a poem, illustrates how the powerful and mighty appearance of God, similar to other Old Testament passages and the other prophets, it makes it clear that when God manifests himself in judgment, it will be impossible to ignore him we either turn to him in repentance or we will perish in our pride in that prophetic prayer Habakkuk points to God that one day he will bring judgment to all evil while saving his people there is the hope there the hope of redemption the hope of 
all evil being judged, but yet God sparing the righteous. Now, we just saw that there is no such thing as righteousness of, of the nations or the people within themselves. So how is that righteous going to work? We find that clue as we just saw in one of the most memorable verses. That the righteous will live by faith. In the New Testament, we obtain the righteousness of Christ by faith in what he already did. In the Old Testament, the saints obtain salvation by faith in what God would promise them of eventually bringing Messiah. By faith is how God would spare his people and declare that those people are his by faith. So then Habakkuk comes away being comforted by the fact that God loves and cares for his people more than Habakkuk does himself. So as we live today in our world and we are grieved and saddened by the chaos and the violence and the corruption, and we turn to God saying, Lord, what's going on? Like Habakkuk says, and we'll see next week. Lord, how long? Don't you care? Don't you see what's going on? God says, yes, I do. And I actually care about it more than you do. That's the comfort that Habakkuk closes a book with. So then what can we take away then from the introduction to Habakkuk? This is a reminder that the children of God can fall into doubt. Doubt of God's goodness while elevating men's self-righteousness. Perhaps even doubt of our salvation. Doubt of the church. You name it. Doubt. The children of God experience doubt. Let us take a quick look at Luke 17, 19 and, and 22. This is talking about John the Baptist when he was captured after speaking truth and calling out the wickedness of, of the king, right? It says, once he was in jail, calling to his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And he answered them, that is Jesus, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. This is John the Baptist. This is a guy that went out and told people to repent or they'll burn. Proclaiming the kingdom of God is at hand. Not mincing words in preaching God's word. Now look at him. He was doubtful once he was in jail. This notion in our weakness, in our fallenness, that maybe God didn't really mean what he says. Or the notion that, okay, maybe God does mean what he says, but this still seems unfair. We have that notion many times in the midst of chaos. Let us look at Genesis 18, 25b. It says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Right? 
We should remember this when we are doubting God's goodness, God's faithfulness, God's justice. Because we don't only see that not as only God just, but he's also merciful. If we got justice, we would get damnation. We would get what is coming to us because of our wicked hearts. But not only is he just, but he's merciful. So then if the mighty prophets of God had doubts, like Habakkuk, like John the Baptist, and we could keep going down the list, right, Peter, if they had doubts, pretty sure you're going to have doubts too. I'm going to have, I had had doubts too. But we should be assured that God is always faithful, even if the answers to our prayers don't come as we expect them or if they're not in our time. Now the takeaway we could have then today is that there is lots of human misunderstanding. Part of that is because our default position as fallen human beings is that by and large we are not to be suffering. We should not suffer. That is the default way of thinking for us as humans. I should not suffer. My brothers and sisters, this is not the Christian life. As a matter of fact, we are promised that we will suffer. Remember the disciples rejoiced in the fact that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And then two, misunderstanding of us as fallen humans is that the false notion that when we follow Christ, life will be all good. Now we know it's not, but many of us have fallen into that. In a sense, that's, that is true, that life will all better eternally, yes. But in the here and now, there's no guarantees. And that's why Jesus says, count the cost. Count the cost of following him. There is infinite gain in the long run, but in the short run, there is no guarantees. And then we look at another takeaway here, lastly, of human impatience. We are impatient beings. If we are honest, many times we ask God for patience and we ask it right now, right? Patience. It's hard to be patient right now with a lot of horrible things going on in our world, in our nation, both here, right, and abroad. In the midst of suffering, corruption, violence, one thing is for sure. As we are, as Christians, called to turn to God to acknowledge our fallenness, our sinfulness, it seems that the world wants to take no responsibility for violence, for atrocities. Right? Everybody ships blame. That's part of the curse of, of Adam and Eve. Right? Adam didn't accept responsibility. He blamed his wife. And the wife blamed the snake. It's no different today. According to the world, nobody's at fault with all the chaos going on. And therefore, there are some today that are genuinely crying out in lament like Habakkuk did, asking, Lord, how long? Lord, why? Lord, take this away. Lord, judge evil. Lord, bring peace. 
Should we pray in such lament? Yes, we should. We absolutely should. There's no other way. But yet, as children of God, as a church, we are not called to shift blame. We are not called to be self-righteous. Rather, we are called to cry out to God, to cry out for mercy, to turn our hearts to Him, to see the error of our ways, to fall on our knees and repent of our sins, to face the reality that we personally, and most certainly as a nation, we are a nation who has forsaken God. We are, as a culture, people who love evil, promote evil, embrace evil, pursue evil, teach evil to our kids from the highest ranks of politics to public education to pop culture to big tech to corporate culture to what is advertised in social media and we willingly consume it. This is a nation, make no mistake, that has forsaken God. There's no such thing as the U.S. being a Christian nation. That's, that's a lie. So how can we turn and say, Lord, please judge them over there. The justice of God always starts in his house. Always. Just as God first judged his own people. And used wicked nations to do that. So then, the book of Habakkuk will be very relevant to us today in order for us to be calling to action. But it will probably not be in the ways that we expect. Not by asking, what are our leaders doing? What are this or that organization doing? But rather, what is God in his divine sovereignty doing? What is God doing? So may we have the hearts to trust in Christ so that as we deal with this chaotic culture and times, we may have spiritual discernment to understand the times, not to see these times as the world sees them. Spiritual discernment to understand the times so that in the midst of this chaos, we could be righteous people that live by faith. And act accordingly. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. For your word is truth. For every word that you have inspired. Proves anyone else that opposes it to be a liar. Lord, remind us that the atrocities we see today. The corruption, the violence we see today. The disobedience and sinfulness we see today. Has no other remedy than the blood of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be warriors of your kingdom. And that with that will come opposition. With that will come suffering. With that will come discomfort. And with that, we need your mercy, your grace, your forgiveness. We depend on that, Lord. We pray for all the suffering going on in the world, especially for your church that is being persecuted. May you grant comfort, may you grant conviction to all of us to trust in you, that you will judge evil and that faithfulness to you will be rewarded 
with eternal life. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.